This is the Dialogue Journal podcast series. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Morris Thurston, a member of the Dialogue Board of Directors. Today we're thrilled to have as our guest Nylan McBain, whose recent and very timely book, Women at Church, Magnifying LDS Women's Local Impact, has been a runaway bestseller. If you enjoy this podcast, I hope you'll consider going online to dialoguejournal.com and subscribing to the print or electronic version of Dialogue. And while you're there, why not make a tax-deductible donation? The next voice you'll hear will be my wife, Dawn, who will introduce Nylon to a gathering of the Miller-Eccles Study Group in Orange County, California. I've been looking forward to this evening uh, for some time, and I know many of you have, too. One evening in 2009, Nyla McBain lay awake in her ground floor Brooklyn apartment, her three daughters asleep down the hall. Nyland had moved in more elite circles than most Mormons, female or male. She was the daughter of a world-renowned opera singer. She was educated in her early years at a private all-girls school and later at Yale. She had grown up surrounded by powerful women whose voices, she said, had been the foundational paving stones of her spiritual, academic, familial, and professional past. She knew she had been given special gifts, one few people had, for she knew many women who felt undervalued, unappreciated, and even invisible. Describing that night in 2009, Nylon wrote in her book, I had returned to my hometown of New York City after years away in San Francisco and Boston. I was tired of new acquaintances, reacting with surprise that I could be an educated city dweller and a Mormon woman, too. After several years of being home with babies, I craved work that reconnected me with my office career. And in an instinctive, inspired way, I knew that telling Mormon women's stories was my calling. And so it began. Within days, she had gathered together some of her like-minded female friends and began interviewing Mormon women from all walks of life. That project grew into the Mormon Women's Project, an outstanding website that houses the life stories of some 300 amazing women from 22 countries. How many of you have been to that website? Okay, a few of you. It's a wonderful website. You should take it in. The stories there will just amaze you and inspire you. Mormonwomensproject.com. Mormonwomen.com. As Nyland heard women's stories, she began to develop some practical ideas for increasing women's visibility and impact at church, ideas that she presented at the annual fair conference in 2012. I heard about this address from Facebook and saw it referenced on many internet sites. It was a big deal. That's when I began to follow Nyland's work. How many here are aware of the talk that she gave at the fair conference? Okay. Subsequently, the folks at Greg Coford Books encouraged her to write what became Women at Church, which has become a national bestseller. 
I went to Deseret Book to buy the book for a friend for Christmas. I knew I could get it from Amazon in two days, but I needed it that day. And I was told that they were all sold out. Tob Winder, who lives in our ward and is the store's manager, told me, I can't keep that book in stock. I told him he should order more copies. How many people here have read her book? Okay, just a few. Oh, you're going to get an education tonight. That's great. I spent most of last night reading the most recent issue of Dialogue, an issue focused on articles written by women about women's issues. I discovered in the back two reviews of, of Nyland's book. In addition to what I've told you, she is the author of a collection of personal essays, How to Be a 21st Century Pioneer Woman. She is the editor of Sisters Abroad, Interviews from the Mormon Women Project, and of course, Women at Church, which you're going to be uh, hearing about tonight. She's also a brand strategist for Bonneville Communications, the agency best known for its work on mormon.org and the I'm a Mormon campaign. I will let her tell you more. Let's welcome Nyla McBain. Thank you for that well-prepared introduction. That was very kind, Don. Um, and I'm sorry, I'm going to kind of shout in your face. So That's great. <laughs> should get for uh, the front row seat. Um, and if you can't hear me in the back, please just, just let me know. Um, I, I, I pride myself on, on speaking up, but if I can't reach all the way in the back, uh, don't hesitate to raise your hand. Uh, I'm, I'm very grateful to be here tonight. I've certainly heard about this, this group from those who have spoken here in the past and those who have attended and... Um, it's so well regarded. It's really an, an honor to be with you uh, here tonight. I want to, you know, I, I, I always start these kind of discussions acknowledging something that might, might be pretty obvious, but I think it's important to get it out in the open, which is that every single one of us here has opinions and thoughts and experiences with Mormon women, either because we are one or we're married to one or you know, the, the child of one, the, the sibling of one. And you've obviously thought about this issue to some degree, or you wouldn't be here tonight. This wouldn't be of interest to you. But you've had some sort of um, experience that's led to some sort of conclusion that, that makes your opinion your universe and is shaping where you're coming from here tonight. And my job I see tonight as really being a facilitator for a discussion. I'm going to talk for perhaps 20 minutes or so, but I, I, the most important thing for me tonight is that we have a discussion where you see me as a resource, we use each other as resources. I've thought a lot about this subject, and I would love to respond as best I can to your questions. So, so please do think of questions. <coughs> Feel free to share things that concern you, that you disagree with, you, you agree with, happy things, sad things you've seen um, uh, regarding this, this topic. I see myself positioned in this conversation in a very specific way. And that, that positioning involves who I'm talking to and the way I'm talking about it. And who I'm talking to, I think, was a, um, established really from the beginning of the Mormon Women Project, but it was really cemented in 2012 when, as Don mentioned, I was asked to speak to the Fair Mormon Conference, which, as you may know, is a a uh, relatively conservative uh, audience, uh, self-defined apologists. And since that time, I, I've 
found myself speaking to a particular audience that may not have thought about some of these issues before. So some of you may have thought about these issues for years and have lots of opinions about them. Um, I have spent a lot of time over the past few years talking to people who have not uh, thought about this in, in, in much detail, <coughs> either because they're very comfortable with their position in the church, or their, their wives are very comfortable with their positions in the church, they've never had an experience that has, has sort of been eye-opening, or else because it, does, it feels off-limits to them. And so I see my calling as being maybe just an eye-opener for, for people for whom this is a, a, a new conversation. So that's who I'm speaking to predominantly, um, and that is the predominant positioning of the book Women at Church. How I'm speaking to them, I think, is represented in my commitment to really have this discussion here tonight and across the church be representative of how we can work together as a body of Christ and how the Savior himself might want us to be having this conversation. You know, the, the Savior was, himself was never uh, shy about talking about or demonstrating sort of tradition-busting uh, subjects or practices, and I think we can be emboldened by that. At the same time, even perhaps more important than the ultimate vision of um, uh, I, I ideal gender relations in the church, for me, is the idea that we model a, a journey that the, the Savior could, would be proud of. With that preface, uh, I'd like to introduce you to a uh, future member of possibly even this institute or one of our institutes, uh, one of our church schools, one of our colleges across the country. And this future student's name is Sam Gordon. And Sam Gordon is a football phenom. Sam Gordon has one of the best rushing and passing mm -hmm. records of any 11-year-old playing peewee football right now. <laughs> and this 11-year-old has been the subject of a Super Bowl commercial, has been featured on the front of a Wheaties box, and has appeared on Good Morning America. There's also Sam's autobiography, written with the help of a ghostwriter since Sam is 11. Uh, Sam's YouTube channel, where you can go and learn how to do football workouts and improve your foot speed. And the fact that Sam recently spoke at a press conference with the governor of Utah, where I met Sam. Why all the attention? Sam has, as I said, one of the best rushing and passing records in all of TV football, but it also has a lot to do with the fact that Sam is a girl. Sam is short for Samantha, and Sam has been dominating youth football leagues in West Jordan, Utah, where she lives, for three years now. Sam is also a Mormon girl. The ghostwriter of her book is none other than her family's home teacher, and what's most interesting about the situation for our discussion today is that there is a girl, a Mormon girl, who's receiving the highest accolades that any child of her age can receive because she is breaking into boys' territory. So Sam reflects an instinct among Americans, and as her fame is demonstrating among Utahns and Mormons, to celebrate crossing over the gender divide. We want girls to have a fighting chance. We crave that parity, whether it's in idealizing one man and one woman in a marriage or an equal number of girls and boys in a family. Heaven forbid a boy gets outnumbered by all these sisters or vice versa. We look for it in our governments and in our boardrooms. We push for girls to go into technology and math because we know that, um, that those disciplines will be strengthened by their presence 
and their impact. In a, in a more mild version of, this, of the Sam Gordon example, in my children's own school in Sandy, Utah, the, uh, a, a science teacher, a, a Mormon man, uh, recently gave a presentation to the Parents Association, composed mostly of Mormon mothers, um, discussing what the school is doing to get our daughters into robotics and engineering clubs at the same rate as boys, and highlighting for, the, for us the benefits that he sees of having equal number of boys and girls on his robotics team. My daughter did join the robotics team. They just had their competition last week. And after a young and energetic host of the robotics league, I uh, finished quoting in half in jest from scripture in the orientation. Uh, he quickly discussed the number of girls and boys on the on the teams that were being represented today. So in microcosm, Utah was represented by this funny young college student with a Lego brick on his head who was introducing us to this, this Lego league, quoting scripture on the one hand and then noting the number of boys and girls on the teams in, in the next moment. So we as members are left with a challenge as we face the fact that in our church institution, which of course is an institution that is in each of our hearts is safeguarding and nurturing our faith and that we, must, we feel the utmost commitment to, there are decision-making bodies and administrative functions that are entirely off-limits to women or where women's numbers and influence are sparse. The fact is that it is at church today in 2015 that Sam Gordon and my own 11-year-old daughter and perhaps your daughters and your granddaughters and your sons and grandsons are being introduced to the idea that there are some things that are off-limits to them because they are girls. What do we do with that? What should our response be? Is this entirely a bad thing? Is it entirely a good thing? How should we cognitively and spiritually navigate the fact that a Mormon woman's lived experience in the world diverges from her experience at church? Is this something the Lord demands we live with? Or does he want us to be working to change this reality? In a, in a research function at work, I've become privy to a new term that's being used by some um, ethnic, cult culturally and ethnically minor minority groups uh, in the United States. There's, a, there's this movement away from uh, describing a melting pot or sort of multiculturalism and using terms instead like ambicultural or transcultural to describe immigrant families to the United States that want to maintain the positive elements of their heritage culture as well as the positive elements of their home country now in the, of the United States. And instead of trying to adapt to the new home country, there's this movement of, of recognizing that these people are just living in a state of ambiculturalism. You know, I think that there's, there's something useful there to describe the way modern American Mormons may be living in an ambicultural state. We are not discouraged, in fact, we are actively encouraged to be participants in our educational systems, in our communities, in our governments, to take best practices from what we are learning uh, out in our worldly experience and apply them to our church communities. And I feel like this is um, something that, that is relevant in the gender space as well. The church is a work in progress, just as all of us are, and I think that's very clear from our modern-day scriptures. To illustrate my response to the more progressive stance, I'd like to share a story from my own word that happened a couple weeks ago. Some of you may remember that 
um, at the end of 2014 with the teachings of the presidents of the church Joseph Fielding Smith manual there was a, a, a lesson entitled the work of latter-day saint women I think this was in early December at least in in my ward and um, my husband is in elders quorum and uh, the day that lesson was taught it was taught by a man who doesn't know me I don't know him I live in a sort of very mainstream middle of the valley uh, Salt Lake ward but that day in my husband's elders quorum class the teacher led the class through each one of the squares in patriarchy bingo which is the icebreaker activity produced by ordained women to quote help identify some symptoms of growing up in a patriarchal culture and is published on their website. So each one of the squares in bingo is a symptom of growing up in a patriarchal culture. But what's so fascinating about this experience is that far from a heated or controversial discussion, the men's reaction, according to several who very excitedly came up to me afterwards, was summed up in a single comment. And this is what my home teacher said later in the day. He said, we realized in our discussion that only one symptom in the game was a direct result of women not having priesthood authority. The rest are things we can control with what we have today. So whether or not this was any intended purpose of ordained women creating patriarchy bingo, I, the, one sim, the one symptom being your brothers were able to perform ordinances when they turned 12, leaving you out, is of course a direct result of priesthood keys and authority currently held only by men. But every one of the other symptoms while still deliberately phrased to highlight the potential distress, points to more pervasive cultural practices and traditions than they underscore a pressing need for female priesthood ordination. This was the conclusion that, that the men came to that day. Um, and these are some of the other symptoms, so I'll read them and see, see what you think. The leaders you grew up learning about, singing about, and honoring were men. If you looked for spiritual guidance, it was usually from a man. You were taught that your primary goal in life was temple marriage, while boys were also taught to prepare for a career. You were taught that men and boys are naturally less spiritual, less nurturing, and more selfish. Most scripture stories were about men and their spiritual journeys, and most stories about women were about marriage or their ability to conceive, and so on. And so the men in my mainstream, mostly conservative Salt Lake City ward came to the same conclusion in their lesson that that I've, been, I've leaned to myself as I've studied women in the church over the past five years, which is that many of the things that grate on women in the church today can be alleviated, not completely rooted out, but alleviated, with changes that we have stewardship over. And this is that message that I've been stating as I've toured with my recent book, Women at Church. We on the ground and in the pews have more control over the messages we send our women, our men, and our youth about the role and potential of women than we think. But we are an obedient people, a tradition-bound people, and we're constantly weighing the eternal paradox of following the prophet on one hand with seeking personal revelation on the other. Be because of these characteristics, I believe half the battle in breaking some of these practices that are damaging our people today is getting us to claim the power to make the changes ourselves as far as we are, are able. And I believe we have nothing less than a divine mandate to closely examine our practices with an eye for adaptability and improvement. And you may know, of course, the scripture that I turn to is in Doctrine and Covenants 58. Very clearly, it says, For behold, it is not meet that I should command in all things, for he that is compelled in all things the same is a slothful and not wise servant, wherefore he receiveth no reward. Verily I say, men should be anxiously engaged in a good cause and do many things of their own free will, 
and bring to pass much righteousness. In the book, uh, Women at Church, I chose as my sort of standard for orthodoxy handbook two, which is, um, as suggested by the name, one of two handbooks that we have to guide the administration of the church, handbook one being only available to certain leaders and so thus off limits to most members. So I chose to focus exclusively on handbook two, which is available to all members. And one of the things that I, I hope I was, I'm able to inspire through the book is a practical application of Doctrine and Covenants 58, 26, which I believe means that we move from reading the handbook like a list of thou shalt nots, meaning as leaders we look at it and we say, I have an idea, but it's not in the handbook, so I'm not going to try it. The handbook doesn't say I can do it, so I'm not going to try it. To instead an approach of saying, wow, the handbook doesn't say I can't, so I'm going to try it for the benefit of the people who are under my stewardship. And this is a subtle but important shift in the way that we are anxiously engaged in caring for the people under our stewardship. And I hope that if the book does nothing else for people, it may awaken some confidence in, our, um, in the mandate we have from the Lord to read the handbook in the second way that I described. Do we repudiate the sacred nature of motherhood if we start encouraging our young women to think of their own career potential too? On the contrary, it is smart life coaching. Do we denigrate our prophet if we honor our female leaders as spiritual guides as well? Not at all. We only add to the wealth of spiritual wisdom. And while I think it's very likely that my sisters at Ordained Women would suggest that all of the symptoms on patriarchy bingo are a result of women not holding priesthood authority, I believe strongly that shifts in our rhetoric, our narratives, our optics, our perception of women's authority and the expectation that they can exercise to have their voice have influence can alleviate many of the pain points that afflict our women today. To be clear, I'm not talking about being satisfied with a token woman quoted now and then or a single woman held up as a public example of how women are important in the church. I'm talking about a fundamental wholesale excavation of women's authority, voice, and visibility in our worship practices. It's a model of gender cooperation that we may not see readily practiced in our external lived experience at school or work or in governments, but that doesn't mean it's impossible. But enough about what I think. Let's look at how the church institution itself is responding to the current conversation about women. One of the theses I grasp onto in the book that I believe in very firmly is that we have very real evidence that our general leadership, too, is somewhere in between uh, these two particular positions. The past two years, one of the reasons they felt so fast to some of us in this conversation is because we've seen a flood of small but significant changes in the way women are seen and heard and included in church administration. Sometimes in the heat of discussion, I think we forget just how much the past two years have offered women, so it merits listing these changes here. And again, some of these are about optics, some of these are about narratives. I believe these are important, and I, can, I will go into more a little bit later why they are important. But let me read this list. One, lowering the mission age for women to 19. Again, two, two, uh, just over two years ago. Creating mission councils that include sister training leaders and an increased role for mission presidents' wives. Female general officers praying in general conference. Female general officers sitting in the center section of the conference center seating instead of off to the side. 
the introduction of apostles' wives onto the conference center stand, female general officers' photos in the conference center, female general officers' photos and leadership spread in the conference ensign, new young women general board members selected from an international group of women, female general officers speaking on doctrinal subjects rather than particular constituencies, general women's session of conference added to the general conference meetings, the general women's session including girls eight and up, and most recently, CES allowing young mothers to be paid CES employees for seminary and institute, with Barbara Morgan being the first female institute director in Cambridge, Massachusetts. So this list to me is an evidence that leadership, uh, too, recognizes the church institution to be a work in progress. And if those things are happening on the general level, do we not have a mandate ourselves on the local level to be doing everything we can to be following in those footsteps and then some. For instance, in this room, there is not a picture of a woman. And yet there are female students sitting in this room all the time, constantly being required to ge- translate the gender of a Mesoamerican military captain and likening it to themselves as college girls. This is a subconscious process that happens day in and day out, so subconscious we're not even aware of it. And yet, it has an impact on these girls that are rising in this very classroom to look for spiritual models for who they can become, not knowing a lot about the divine mother that they are supposed to become like, and not knowing a lot about the female general officers that are set up as their spiritual mentors here uh, in the here and now. What can we do to make sure that those girls understand that they have ecclesiastical authority, the expectation of influence as, as, as women in the church today. The organization that has the humility to acknowledge that some things may be an abomination in the Lord's sight and that we must be actively engaged in stewardship over those in our care. I think that's what we <coughs> are seeing and, and uh, what can, we can claim as our church. While we've seen these changes roll out, of course, we've also seen the internal pushes and pullings that are the hallmarks of a passionate conversation. A few months ago, the media covered the confusion over whether the women's meeting should be considered the first session of general conference, as President Uchtdorf suggested in some comments. Apparently, the message didn't reach the editing bays, resulting in public tension and speculation. Are women really as important as the church says they are? The institutional church this year or in 2014, endorsed a song for the primary program that felt to some like the church was digging in its heels on traditional gender roles. Uh, Some of you may remember the song from the the primary program. The verse went, A father's place is to preside, provide, to love, and teach the gospel to his children. A father leads in family prayer to share their love for Father in heaven. A mother's purpose is to care, prepare, to nurture, and to strengthen all her children. She teaches children to obey, pray, to love, and serve in the family. Perhaps this was all a very calculated message from the institutional church to remind us that our priorities as men and women should be in our families and our children. But there's room for that message, even as we discuss how to also send the message that women can prioritize education, spiritual pursuits, career potential, and finding engaging role models. Because what we are working towards now is a both-and model rather than an either-or model that has dominated many narratives for too, much to- for too long. We don't have to be with ordained women or with Mormon women stand 
or with Exponent 2 or with Feminist Mormon Housewives and against everybody else. We don't have to be a mother or a worker. We don't have to be a nurturer or a breadwinner. We're working towards a new model, a cooperative model, where a cornucopia of roles and skills and interests work together with each other to strengthen our womanhood and our personhood. I understand that what I'm proposing is more than just changing the org chart. I understand that cultural change only happens when we replace prior cultural practices with new cultural practices. For us in the church, new practices need to feel like continuity. Change needs to feel like continuity. That is the way we have negotiated that tension between agency and obedience. We find a place where change feels like a moral imperative, where as a body of Christ we've come to a place where we see no other way than to embrace a new morality. And so I think, if nothing else, these conversations are helping us move as a body of Christ to a place where we can say together there is a new moral imperative that we're going to get behind. And that is in the way that we see and include and magnify the impact of our women at church. While this may seem like a large task, I was reminded a couple of weeks ago of our, our uh, foremothers and fathers' willingness to take on large tasks. We were driving over Thanksgiving weekend through Utah, through central Utah, and we um, I don't know the geography that well. I I've only been there a couple times, but we entered a pretty vast valley. And in the end of November, it was pretty desolate. And for a New York City kid, it looked really barren. And, uh, and we noted a small white sort of beacon up on a hill overlooking this valley. Um, and it took us about 20 minutes to get close to it, but I pretty soon figured out that it was the Manti Temple. And... And we got out, my family and I, and we were walking around. At my, we'd been in the car for a long time. My kids got out and started running around, and my husband and I were walking around looking up at it and then looking out at this vast, barren valley. And my husband turned to me and he said, we were an ambitious people, weren't we? And I was so struck by that and, 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 um, and really moved by that, that you know, the, our, our heritage is to make the desert blossom as a rose. And we our end vision and our end destination for these conversations may be very well something that we don't see in earthly institutions today. The Lord may be asking us to do something as audacious and crazy and different as settling the desert um, in central Utah. But I believe we can do it. And so thank you for being here tonight and being part of that movement to get us where we're going as a body of Christ in a way that the Lord would be proud of us and where we are actually acting as uh, proper stewards for all of those in our care. I would love to hear your thoughts, your questions. Again, offer myself as a resource so we can have a conversation about this, see where, you know, have you had some pain points? Have you had some triumphs? And and positive things that have been happening in your awards and stakes, any reactions to the book, any reactions to this discussion. 
Yes, Donna. The majority of the people here haven't read your book, and so I would like you to share some of your ideas that you share in the book for change that would be workable and practical given the doctrines of the church. Uh, Certainly. So um, the first half of the book is an exploration of the factors that I think are causing women to feel this acute tension between their lived experience in the world and their experience in the church. And that's sort of the, you know, a little bit of a downer, the downer part of the book. And then um, in section two, I break down some concrete suggestions as to what we can do uh, in our wards and stakes. And these suggestions were uh, collected from probably about 150 interviews, email interviews, phone interviews, with just everyday members who had something to say, um, all the way up to you know mission presidents and stake presidents and um, and stake relief society presidents, lots of those. And you know the the um, the suggestions uh, fall sort of into different categories. Uh, one major section is uh, the ward council and how to use the ward council and uh, specifically a discussion of how to magnify the women's voices and authority in that council when there's only three of them and ten men on average. And so those three women are having to represent half of the, uh, the population of the, um, the ward. Um, and I talk a lot about the idea of women's voices having authority. And as a, as a side note, there's a, there's a, a new book out called The Silent Sex, which um, I knew, I heard about while I was reading Uh, while I was writing the book and kind of had my eye on it. It was going to be published by Princeton University Press, and I thought, oh, that's too bad that it's not out yet because I'd certainly like to to use that that book. But I I looked for it, and it it did eventually come out, I think, in October. And lo and behold, this groundbreaking book on um, gender relations in deliberative bodies is written by a BYU political science professor, a Mormon man, and it's so fascinating to me that, that even our men are so so highly engaged in this conversation that they devoted their entire academic career to talking about what do we do in deliberative bodies to make sure that women's voices are being given the weight and authority that um, structurally they lack when they are in the minority. Um, and so, you know, I've had I've had some new ideas since writing the book because of because of Professor Karpowitz's work, but he talks about the need to establish, you know, uh, systems of conversation, of, of, actual, um, of actual systems of interrupting and giving people time to speak so that women's voices are weighted um, in a way that he's discovered naturally in deliberative bodies, they, they are not weighted. Uh, that's actually not in the book, but that's kind of the, the, the new field of exploration that I'm particularly excited about. But a lot of the a lot of the most concrete things in the book are about um, youth groups. You know, the, the youth specifically, the idea that um, activity girls' days budgets are almost non-existent in wards, whereas wards go way out of their way. Right now, my whole ward is doing a um, a fundraiser at the local grocery store for the Boy Scouts. You know, I mean, the whole ward's involved with this thing. Meanwhile, my three daughters are going off and you know sewing scripture bags. Um, <laughs> I'm not bitter at all, right? But um, the idea with, with the young women is that there are these systematic built-in ways for the young men to be visible and to be seen uh, in our sacraments. So they pass the sacrament. They hold, In my ward, they hold the microphone for people who want to bear their testimony because I'm a very elderly ward, so they can't get up to the pulpit. 
you know, they, in, in, in some words, uh, uh, in, in my stake, actually, even not in my war, the, the boys mm-hmm. collect fast offerings, they go door to door, they go home teaching with their fathers. So, you know, there's, there's a whole universe of parallels with the girls that we just have not even explored. And, you know, that, those are, that is low-hanging fruit. Uh, I mean, have the girls go visiting teaching, for goodness sake, you know. Um, equalize the budgets, make sure that there's parity in the events, uh, make sure that there's this nostalgic and emotional connection with what the girls do, just as there is with the Pinewood Derby. You say the Pinewood Derby and dads just go wild. You know, you say make scripture bags and the moms are like, well, I don't, you know. There's no, like, great heritage and nostalgic uh, uh, connection, emotional connection with that. So, you know, those are the kinds of things that have impact on our girls because those are the messages that they receive that, you know, I am just there's there's not this place for me here. Um, I I'm not I'm not being trained in the same way. One of my favorite things in the book um, is a, is a case study that I include of a, a stake relief society president, and this is actually in Boston. I don't mention that in the book, but this is a stake relief society president in Boston who was invited to meet with the mission president and the stake president of the area. So when uh, so this was that so that in itself is is not a usual practice. But the mission president and the stake president in their monthly meetings it has has invited have invited the stake relief society mm-hmm. president to join them. So at the time they were meeting as a trio, and the missionary age changed, and all of a sudden they got this huge influx of missionaries, and it was the stake relief society president who said, "I know, why don't we?" Increase the number of service hours, first of all, for the missionaries up to 10. I, I don't know if that had happened before the missionary age, but in this mission, they have 10 hours of missionary service every week that they're required to do. So the Stake Relief Society president said, I know, put the women in charge of that service because missionaries are often, you know, in most places asked to do uh, service as part of their missions, but they're there for such a short time that they don't have an opportunity to establish relationships with you know, real service organizations in the community and really create those long relationships. And so they end up breaking leaves and making cookies and doing good things, but, but not these, like, you know, community-building activities. And so she said, we're going to create a new calling. It's called a missionary service coordinator, and it's something that is going to reside in our individual ward relief societies. And those women are going to be responsible for interacting with the ward and populating the 10 hours of service that the missionaries do each week. So this, the, mission, the local relief societies now have the deep-rooted and, and broad, you know, broadly-reaching relationships with service organizations in the Boston area. And they're the ones who have been the communication points for, you know, I think it's been about two years now, with those local organizations. And the missionaries come and go... You know, but the but the, the the relief societies are the ones who are maintaining that relationship, and it gives. You know, I mean, I feel so strongly that we need to revive the 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 temporal welfare that was relief society's original mission because it is such an, a needed balance to, uh, to the administrative function of the priesthood in our in our worship community. And, um, you know, our early foremothers did a great job of exemplifying what that kind of organization could look like and what kind of purpose that service could give uh, to our community. And I would love to see that revitalized. So that's just a a very little taste. There's a lot more, but um, those are the kinds of ideas. Yes. Hi. Hi. Um, I'm Caroline. Yes. Hi, Caroline. Nice to see you. Um, 
you know, Nail, Natalie, I want to thank you for all the work you've done on this issue. Like, I am very excited about things we can do on a local level to make it more visible and more power. Um, I do have a question, though. You know, I've thought about these issues for 15 years, and while I do agree that there's a lot that can be done on a local level and so much work that can be done there, and I'm excited about that work, it seems to me like sometimes there are things that have to happen on a structural level coming from Salt Lake. And so, um, for instance, I'll tell you my story is I went through the temple 15 years ago, and I was devastated by the language in the temple. And I would love to communicate that, and I would love to see changes in that language, which I think would represent so much of, of, of contemporary messages about equal partnership between men and women that we hear from our local leaders, but I don't see exactly in temple language. So I would like to communicate this to my leaders. And I was wondering if you have any advice for women like me who have questions on a structural level, systemic questions about women's place in the church, not just local solutions, but major structural issues. How can um, women like me who have these structural issues Communicate to my leaders, and, and how can how can we work for change on that level? Yeah, I, thank you. I, I mean, I I hope that I hope that nowhere am I come come off as as suggesting that things that are that, that the what we have in our control at the local level will be entirely sufficient. I don't think I've ever said that. I as I said, I don't particularly agree with your Dane women platform or tactics, but that's not to say that I'm not quick to say that at some point structural things need to change and you and you've used the temple as an example and and yes that's 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 one thing that I, I think would be right for investigating on it on it on a general level but how to do that like I, I, you know it's it's difficult and I'm the first to admit that I've you know and I've had I've had experiences myself where I've sent letters uh, we have stupid example where we had no we had no trash cans in my ward in San Francisco. And we sent a letter, to, we, we talked to the state president, and it was kind of just this, this non-issue because we were kind of like this, the stepchild ward up in the evil city, you know. And um, <laughs> so we eventually sent a letter to Salt Lake, and it re was returned unopened to the state president, who got so upset that we had gone around him. And, you know, th this, is, this, is a real, this is a real issue. And I don't know what the answer is except to create an environment, again, on the local level, because that's what we have control over right now, where we are shown, we are, we are perceived as being ready to walk through that door when it opens, whatever that door leads to. And that said, I understand that that's a, um, a tactic that requires a lot of patience and a lot of you know, relationship building. Um, on the local level to make sure that we're actively engaged with our local leaders to show and, you know, to, to, to demonstrate uh, the kind of community that we want to be a part of. Um, but there, you know, there, there, is a, there is a communication gap where we don't necessarily have uh, a democratic way of, of communicating with um, our most senior leadership. And so, you know, my approach is demonstrate our our. our, our Willingness to walk through that door, um, but I know that's that's not, you know, those aren't the the tactics. So I the answer is it's it's difficult, and I I, I sympathize and I understand. Um, again, I think practicing on a local level what we'd like to see on the general level helps that relationship become more symbiotic. Yes, 
So obviously a lot of the things you've talked about are based on many years of lived experience and most of the people in this room have a certain amount of that but as a youth in the church I haven't been around a long time. I haven't had a lot of lived experience and neither have my peers and I think a lot of the change you're looking for will be dependent upon the next generation. Therefore how do we get them interested now as young adults 16, 17, 18, about to make major life choices, how do we get them started on the right track, both young men and young women, so that when they are adults, they can make these greater changes themselves? Well, one of the things that I feel really passionate about is, I I mentioned earlier, like, there are no pictures of women in this room. For 17 years, uh, we've we've never, we haven't had a woman's voice or a woman's story represented in gospel, in um, priesthood or relief society. And I explain in the book why that is. It's because President Hinckley wanted a doctrinal book in every member's home, which, of course, is a wonderful thing that was the prophet's prerogative and, you know, presumably an an inspired decision. But, you know, the side effect of that is, as I said, we haven't had a woman's voice represented for 17 years. And whereas we were coming out of a period earlier in the 20th century where not only were really society manuals, uh, including women's stories and, and voices, but they were written by women. They were written by the Relief Society Board. So, so you know, our youth have, have grown up with um, curricula. They're going to be sent out on their missions with Preach My Gospel, which, again, does not quote a single woman or tell a story, a single woman, a story about a woman. There are some stories that are gender neutral, but there are no stories about women. And so, you know, whether or not they notice that as youth... We do. <laughs> you know, as I, as I said, they, you know, there are, I believe that it's our responsibility and our right and our mandate to, to see what we can do to alleviate some of that. In the meantime, uh, as the teachers and as the role models and mentors of our youth, by ourselves seeking out those talks, those stories, those lessons, those female heroines and scriptures, and adding those into the lessons. The new Young Women's Manual is better I don't, you, than, than the older one, but there's still so much room to make Mary and Elizabeth the focus of the Sunday school lesson. You know, someone came up to me last night after I spoke, and she said, I, I sat through that lesson in New Testament. We didn't even mention Mary and Elizabeth, you know. That is what's happening right now. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> don't mention Mary, like, again, because, you know, what if a male teacher got up in front of the class and said, we're going to talk about Mary today, and all the men go, oh, that's like listening to a woman talk in general conference, I'm going to go get a snack, you know, that, that's what we're overcoming, and so when you make it normal, create this, this new sense of normal that every lesson we have includes a, a, a female scripture heroine, it includes a, a story by, um, by a, a general female officer, includes a quote um, from a general female officer, then you create that expectation in our youth and then that, that that is the way we teach ecclesiastical authority, right? And they're not getting that now and they're noticing it. And if we start doing that now uh, for, for those who are younger, then they will notice it when it's missing in the future. And, um, and I, I, you know, I just, I have to think that uh, that, that, you know that's that's one thing we have in our toolkit right now that we can um, that we can very easily allevi- alleviate to some degree. Yes. 
pretty much the whole time that I've been talking about this, uh, I'd say the reactions from men, from men versus the, the positive reactions I received from men compared to the positive reactions I received from women are about an exponent of four or five. Greater. So greater. Greater than the women. Yeah. Yeah. So overwhelmingly, the positive responses I received are from men. Um, of course, you know, men, men, you know, you're describing that some male leaders, of course, do feel like they need to, to be representatives of a, of a, of a strict interpretation. Right. But what I've found is that, um, you know, men are much more likely to respond from a place of personal compassion and personal stewardship over daughters, uh, specifically. So uh, most, most of the emails I've received from men have some sort of you know, I'm concerned about my daughters sort of thing. And I think that's a really powerful motivator. It's like what I said about the Elders Quorum in my ward. The, the lesson in my Relief Society that day was not like that, you know. Um, I, I, I'm in primary, so I've, I interviewed a lot of people about what happened today, you know. And, and Relief Society was completely um, not unusual that day. And I think that um, the women have I've I've We've found much more roadblocks. Well, I think I think it's not. yeah I think it's a number of things. I think first of all, you know, when you when you say that um, you know some of our mainstream women are should not should not feel happy at church because of A, B, and C. It's an indictment of their whole way of life. It's an indictment of the whole sense of identity that they've been building up. You know, whether justified or not, it's been it's been I'm important because I do the A, B, and C, or I'm important because I'm I've told I'm important. You know, whatever that reason is, it's an indictment and it's a condemnation of that sense of security um, and that sense of identity that they've built up. And I also think you know, there's a lot more at risk for women to talk about these issues among other women because of of judgment among other women, um, a scene overreaching. And so, you know, I think any tactic needs to needs to acknowledge that that men oftentimes are the, the greatest allies in this conversation because they have much less at stake in terms of their reputations and interpersonal relations with other men. Um, and I think that was exactly what I saw in my ward that day when all the men were perfectly happy to talk about patriarchy mm-hmm. bingo. Hi, I'm April Carlson. My primary has this same set of pictures right up in the front. I have a picture on my cell phone I can show you later. And then right underneath it, um, are what my son babies call the lady apostles, but are actually the auxiliary <laughs> primary presidency, right? Um, to get those pictures of the primary auxiliary you know, like leaders up there, um, my building also has the young women leaders up in the young women's room, and the way society is up in the way society. Are they individual, or are they like the like it's, linked it's three arm? individual Oh, okay, pictures. interesting, yeah, great. Individual pictures. These weren't available at the distribution center. Yeah, I was going to say, where did you get them? Did you, like, Photoshop them yourself? Yes. I called them and emailed them many times and was told to go to to Desert Book or Seagull and see if they could help me. Um, And they couldn't. And so, you know, I wrote back, like, what are my alternatives? The pictures are available on the media site for the church. Do you want me to just download them and print them at Costco? They're like, yeah, that's pretty much where you're at. Wow. So that's what I did. That's what you did. Um, and it's great because, you know, my son teams ask questions about the lady apostles. Excellent. <laughs> 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 With yeah. language and names. Yes. We'll get back to that. Yes. Yes. And I explained that, no, those are the ladies that make decisions about the primary for all the children of the world. And, you know, I reframe it for them. Yeah. But what's at eye level for them? are these three women in suits that they see, you know, like are about the age of their grandmothers for, you know, like the little ones. 
And thank goodness they can see something at their eye level besides like the scantily clad girls at the grocery store <coughs> checkout counter where you know like they go through with their moms and see what's you know on the cover of people and us weekly. Um, but getting access to those images was challenging and you know, as somebody who's very attuned to finding quotes from women, stories from women, you know, like now that I'm in primary, um, I use girls who choose, um, who choose cotton Wonderful. all the time. Yeah. Um, and teaching, um, teaching my class. Um, but we had like three months of hand meetings from that book yeah, <laughs> in my there's, house. Um, <laughs> there's only two talks by women in, you know, in, in real general conference, not in that, that women's session yeah. that's, um, that's apart. And I... I want to hear from more women. So as I've been looking, especially as a woman of color, you know, like where where can I find some good like in the fold LDS women that I don't have to pay money for women's conference or time out for women to mm-hmm. go here? Yeah. And there's these auxiliary boards, and you know, I went onto the church website and started checking out these auxiliary board women. And wow, there's like a mathematician in there, awesome. computer programmer. Um, they speak like eight different languages. Mm-hmm. Um, they've served missions all over the world, and that's all I know about them. Like, why don't I get to hear them speak at well, the whole conference? Like, I will safely say, happen? in our lifetimes, you will. <laughs> I mean, and that, that's a really, really yeah. safe prediction. No, I, we, we will. I mean, that, what? Maybe not mine. Well, <laughs> hopefully, Lord. I, I, hopefully it's not that far. The, that is exactly the, I mean, you're thinking exactly along the lines. And I know for a fact that that particular suggestion is being discussed, like, at public affairs and, they're recommending, they, you know, they're responsible for having the women talk about general doctrinal subjects rather than particularly to their constituents. I'm very attuned to half of my family that lives in Mexico, and they don't have girls who choose God in Spanish right, right. to teach yes. in their primary. And the only talks they have for women are the ones that are given in general conference and you know, right. the general women's conference that right. are translated. And globally, you know, all these resources that I can go and pick up at Desert Book, you know, like Women in the New Testament, you know, like there's like two or three different homes I can choose from. Those aren't available to my aunts, to my grandma, to my cousins, uh, in other parts of the world. Yeah. Just the difficulty in bridging that gap. So you're you're speaking to where my heart is right now because one of the things I always wanted to do with the Mormon Women Project was make sure that it was available in other languages, and that is for a volunteer organization that's like primarily me, um, with some other wonderful, good-hearted women who have come in and out over the past five years. Um, that's extremely hard. What we have ended up doing is we've used a couple of BYU interns that have gone on study abroad to France and done oral history work, and then they've transcribed and translated the interviews, and we've published them both in French and English. We've done that with French, Hungarian. Um, Korean, uh, Chinese, you know, but that's a uh, Russian, but that's still like 20 out of the 320 interviews that are in other languages. And so what we also have done, um, again, with, you know, just a, a one other good-hearted volunteer is we started a whole other part of the Mormon Women Project called Our Cooperative Ministry. And it's something we're, we're in the process of redesigning the site, which probably hopefully will be done uh, sort of in the middle of the year. Well, all of that content is included just seamlessly with the interviews, but the whole idea of that new add-on is Sunday school supplements, you know, like Feminist Mormon Housewives is doing a whole lesson on Chiko Okazaki every week, uh, pulling quotes and stories from her life. We want to do Sunday school enhancement supplements where we take that New Testament lesson and we say, okay, here's what President Julie Beck had to say about this portion of scripture and this is what Eliza Snow had to say about this portion of scripture and here's something about Mary you can say during this lesson 
Um, you know, so we, and then another thing we want to do is provide, uh, we pro we're trying to provide a library of examples of things exactly like you're saying, where I did this in my primary and the ceiling did not fall down on me, right? Because we love to follow precedent. So if there's a leader somewhere else who doesn't know if it's quite right and needs the courage to suggest it, they can say to their bishop or something, hey, you know, or the primary president, hey, you know, this woman did it, let's do it too. The other thing I'd love to do is, you know, let's send me the examples of the pictures. We'll post them and say, if anybody else wants to do this, if they're hard to find, come here, and you can just download them directly from our Facebook page or from the site. So that's, the again, well, single-handedly, but to. I need, you know, people like you are doing these things, so I'm I, trying to collect our... Our efforts. We're going to take two more questions. This one and this one. Try to keep your okay. Short. Keep them short. I'm speaking from the you know the position of being in my 60s. Okay, I called myself a feminist since I was in my 20s, and so I'm. You can understand why I'm a little impatient because we've done all those things. I mean, we've tried very hard on, on local levels. You know, I used to call meetings with my state presidency to suggest ways they could be more inclusive. <coughs> this is in the 80s. You know, work with Exponent 2, all of that. I came to the conclusion that 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 we have to have structural change in the church. That that women will never be. Women have to be a full uh, uh, have to be ordained. Actually, I think they will eventually. It's got to mm -hmm. happen. But I, I I came to the conclusion early on that that had to happen while I'm still working with within the thing the the structure of the church. But I know, have you changed? Have you shifted a, a little bit on that? I mean, you, you, in your fair speech, you end with something that I took major issue with, and that's this uh, a complementarian view versus the egalitarian view of, of um, uh, a model, if you will. And you hinted at, a, at the complementarian view. Do you still hold to that, or are you willing to open that up? I don't think it's about whether I'm willing to or not. I mean, I, I, I am very much not a sort of, as I said at the very beginning, I'm not an end goal kind of person. You know, I'm, my efforts are to prepare us as a group to feel change as continuity and to prepare us to open, to walk through a door when it's opened. And what that door is, if it's ordination or if it's some other structural change or if it's, uh, you know, something we can't imagine yet, then then I'm willing to entertain a whole range of options for what that door actually is. But, you know, for me... But you're willing uh, to entertain a model that doesn't include that and that you see as a as as I'm, I'm yes, one of the things that I love, and it might come from 13 years of single-sex education, is the idea that there's the sacred space for developing the voice and authority of women apart from boys and men. And I love that. I love the Relief Society having their own purpose, like I described in the Boston Stake, um, where it's uh, 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 separate, but you know, something that, that the Relief Society can grasp onto as their very own. And, and I, I love that model, and I think that that's where I'm comfortable. I know that, that that's not where you are, but, you know, when I say that maybe there's this model that we haven't fully excavated yet and, and developed, that if I had to say an end goal, it would be Relief Society given a global mandate to, you know, solve, solve illiteracy or, <laughs> you know, sex trafficking or maybe just the homeless in our communities, but something where from the pulpit we're said, you know, this is our organizational purpose. This is what you grasp onto. This is what you tell your girls when they say, do only boys pass this priesthood, pass the sacrament. Yes. And you are going to be doing 
this at, um, and and have that actually mean something to our girls. So, okay, one more. Hey, yes, one. Jackie Bonfort, fifty-five. Read your book, loved it. I want to know how we can approach a change without appearing rebellious. Okay, easy example. I hate wearing dresses. I cannot stand it. And ever since fourth grade, around the monkey bars, you have to wear shorts to school, you know, because I had to wear dresses and it was the sixties. So I said, I can't wait until it changes and we can wear pants to church. I'll wear the nice Hillary Clinton pantsuit because I see people in jeans, skirts, and t-shirts and I could feel, my husband's like, well, what's the big deal? I'm like, do you ever worry about your underwear showing at church? Do you have to keep your knees together? You don't. You know, I just don't like it. But, so my daughter, adult daughter, was listening and she goes, well, mom, why don't you just wear pants to church? And I said, I would lose my job teaching seminary. I've been teaching seminary for 13 years. If I start coming every Sunday wearing pants, I would be released from that calling not really told us because I'm wearing pants, right. but and then the pants won't even be rebellion. I know they're a rebellion symbol right now because they were wear pants at church thing I saw. <laughs> I really wasn't into that, into the comfort thing. But so how do we, if it's a bigger thing, pants is not that big of a deal, but if it's a bigger issue, if we have a doctrine issue, how do we ask the question, start the conversation without appearing rebellious? That That's kind of a million dollar question, yeah. Um, you know, I, I think, um, trying to think of a specific example I've had in my, my own life. I, you know, I, I can only give an, uh, an ex, ex, I mean, things like that, I, I'll like, I'll, you know, you, and you've probably thought of this and it probably sounds banal, but if it's that important to you to start wearing pants to church, is there, is there a particular administrative leader who you could create to be your ally before you even do it? Mm-hmm. See, but I don't care about pants as much, but there's other doctrinal things. Like, who do I ask? Why do we cover our faces in the temple? When we oh, oh, well, that, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Bigger issues. I don't know. I ask a lot of doctrinal questions, and I'm probably considered rebellious, and I don't really let it. I don't know. I don't. I, that's just who I am. I don't really care. Um, you know, I think, I think, um, but you have a certain. I know you don't want to use your job as a seminary teacher. I mean, does anybody have any? I think you pray beforehand. Thoughts. I think if you go in with a pure heart and you go in with the intention that I want to draw closer to my heavenly Father, I want to be an active part of the body of Christ. I'm not doing this because I'm rebellious, because I'm disrespectful. You're doing it because you care. And if you say a prayer beforehand and you do the fasting and you supplicate to the Lord, you may have to wait and work and try and beg, but you will get there. He will not leave us alone. And I, I know, even at 17, I know that no matter how long we have to battle in an imperfect world to make this a better church, this is the true gospel. And it's worth fighting for, it's worth betting on, and it's worth believing in. Thank you. I mean, I think there's, there's a lot of truth in what she's saying about a lot of times when we appear rebellious, it's because we appear to be self-aggrandizing or self-promoting or self-rewarding, right? And um, I, I mean, I would... I would imagine, I would hope that there is no such hard-hearted bishop or stake president who you would go into to say, I want to be the best teacher I can be for my high school students. And that means that I have to talk about these questions and settle them for myself so that I can be that ecclesiastical leader with authority expecting to influence them in positive ways. And this is, this is integral to that, that role. Okay, we need to close, and I know some of you still have some questions, and maybe you could talk to them privately. We'll have a few that will come up here. But we want to thank Nyland for giving her time.
You've been listening to the Dialogue Journal podcast series. We'd like to thank our guests today. For more Dialogue podcasts or to comment on this one, please visit dialoguejournal.com. Thank you.